2: Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games, like it says on the tin. I am your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. I'm very glad to hear it, Walker. That pleases me to the depths of my soul. It warms the cockles of my heart and other idioms that I don't understand the origins of. So, this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the aures the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And we're going to have a topic this week, and the topic is dealing with rules mistakes or give me back Greece. Don't, don't give away the lead, Mark. Give it back to me, Walker. Oh, they'll understand. They'll know. I just want them to get... This is a bit of a tease. This is a professional tease so they can start the outrage running so their righteous indignation can match the appropriate level when it comes time to hear the injustices that I've suffered at the hands of... Of our gaming group, either that or the very slow eye roll can start. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) it is difficult to roll your eye that slowly, but you're right. You're right. You got to give warning. So, Walker, what did we review one year ago? Well, we went back in time, Mark, and we told ourselves
3: to play a game called Anachrony: Fractures of Time, and then unfortunately, we didn't re-go back in time and and give ourselves a reason not to do it, and then. Here it is, and then we went back in time again, and then we went in the future and we played the expansion and then we went back in time and
2: I'm afraid, listeners, that Walker is clearly having some kind of stroke. So yes, we,
3: we we reviewed Anachrony and we've played it several times since. It is one of our favorite Mind Clash games. It is a very interesting game where they sort of you know, you borrow resources from from the future, and then when you get to the future you have to go back to the past and, and replace those Lots of other things going on, much like any other Mind Clash game. Plenty of things, and that's what I enjoy about this game in particular. It's like every time I play it, I sort of focus on a different part of the game. It's like, okay, well, I never did this, so I'm just going to sit and do nothing but, you know, these scientific discovery type things. And
2: And for a game already packed with expansion modules, many of them forgettable, you know, the Doomsday module, this, that, and the other, the Fractures of Time expansion isn't... A necessity, but is probably one of the better expansions, certainly for a heavy Euro game. I'm hard-pressed to think of a heavy Euro game with a better expansion than Fractures of Time. Fractures of Time was a review copy to the base game of Anachrony, which I already had. And it really lets you focus on the time travel aspect in a novel way. You get to send your workers to be two places at once. That's a manifestation of your time travel engine. You get to focus on your actual time machine, which gives you something else to fiddle with if you're so inclined. But it somehow doesn't feel extraneous. It's a little bit connected to everything else. I'm not going to pretend that Anachrony, certainly with Fractures of Time, is the sort of tightly composed, intricately interconnected thing that you're going to find in something like a splatter game. You know, that's usually the comparison set that I have, because when it comes to heavy euros, mostly it's the mind clash stuff and the splatter stuff. And the splatter stuff is much cleaner, much more tightly focused, much more interconnected with the mechanisms. But if you're going to sprawl, and if you're going to have a whole bunch of boards everywhere, and if you're going to have a whole bunch of stuff flying all over the place, Anachrony Fractures of Time is one of my favorite ways to do it. Great game. Play it anytime. That is Anachrony, Fractures of Time by Mind Clash Games. Moving on to the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week?
3: Mark, you were nice enough to introduce us to Free Ride by Friedman Freeze, his newest game, published by 2F Spiel. And this is sort of a pick-up, passenger-and-deliver type game. It has this very novel sort of, there's one card for every area on the map. And then you lay them out in this sort of display of... Rows of three, and so that's the way you have to sort of decide how you're going to deliver them. So the top one is going to be where you pick them up, and the next one is going to be where you deliver them, or the middle one will be pick up, and the last so you one will be
2: deliver. London, Madrid, Zagreb, and you can take that either as London to Madrid or Madrid to Zagreb. Just so, and so the
3: the every game is going to be com- vastly different. Neither of those are
2: two good routes. No, <laughs> there there many terrible routes came up. Yes. That was my initial concern with Freeride. Look, Friedman Freeze is a genius. He's absolutely one of the top-tier Euro game designers, and I will absolutely play anything he's done. Which is really weird, because he really... I, I think his his moment of greatest notoriety was back when he was doing stuff that was the least interesting. You know, for some Floors, Power Grid, those are fine, those are okay games. I don't really like playing them all that much. Really, ever since Friday, I think, might be sort of a tipping point for me, where almost everything he's done has been super interesting. The Fast Forward series, especially Fortress, we both like... Like Fiorabend, although it's awfully liked, FAM was shockingly clever. And things like uh, Fast Sloths, even Free Ride. like So many excellent, clever little things. Freeride is a very, very approachable game. Very rules minimal. And it nonetheless has this constant influx of noise. Which is to its credit. By noise, I mean the random ticket draws. When the game was first set up, I was the only person at the table. I was already to complain. I was. I put my Walker hat on. It's like, what would Walker do? Well, Walker would complain the entire game because everyone started up by drafting a route that was one city, one or two cities away, because that's just how the how the how the draft went. And I was the only one who had to work a little more. I was. I was uh, off in the Iberian Peninsula, and I was uh, two or th- I was three or four cities away instead of one or two cities away. But. Honestly, that's just going to be drowned out by the sheer number of routes you're going to be completing. And by the mid-game, certainly by the late game, it's less a question of whether or not it's one or two routes away, but more where is it in relation to where you are now? Where is it in relation to what routes, uh, train links you've already built? It was really enjoyable. I I generally can be hit or miss with pick-up-and-deliver games, but I found Free Ride to be delightful. Yeah, and the, fa- and the timing was
3: really cool as well, because even though mark had a longer route and we had short routes we we're completing those routes thereby putting more routes into the display because every time you complete a route you're going to pick another one up you know very soon so that you sort of cycles them out and so you can sort of I don't want to say waste time because you're going to have to build track anyway, but you can, instead of moving your train, just keep building track and waiting for a route in your area to open up. And I thought that was a very interesting sort of mechanic, sort of like, okay, well, I can deliver this one, but I really want to do one on the way or when I get there, I want a decent one to be there. So I'm just going to do what I need to do
2: anyway and just hold out and wait for something interesting. And building track on spec is not always a bad idea. The the title of the game comes from the fact that when you build a slice of track, it's yours. Until such time as somebody decides to use it, they hand you three points in the form of a coin, which is expensive, mind you, because sometimes a route might only end up netting you four points, case depending. It could end up netting you as many as ten.
3: I think if you play it a bunch, it will be there'll be a little bit more of a meta sort of looking at the whole display and, and figuring out roots. But at the in the game we played, I felt it moved a little bit like a flow chart it was just sort of like like i said timing it's like okay do i need another route no do this yes do that you know or is there a route near me that's you know a one a one track thing no then wait or build it or you know it seemed like a very easy flow charty type
1: game
2: It didn't feel that way to me. Now, this may just be the confirmation bias of, oh, I won the game, and therefore I saw the hidden depths, blah, 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 so I'm trying not to engage in that kind of thing. There is enough randomness and enough system turnover that I'd be—I think this is the kind of thing we could discover with subsequent plays. And despite your misgivings about it being somewhat of a flowcharty, somewhat of an obvious decision— sort of game, I think my impression was that you would be happy to try again. Oh, 100%. Yeah, so I think this is whether I'm right and it's whether the game really encourages you to take a step back and be like, well, maybe I shouldn't take that low-hanging fruit. Maybe I should make the effort to go back to Central Europe so that, they, that I can do these other exogenous things. Or whether you're right and it's obviously just a question of connect the dots, I think this will shake out from some Oh, no, I, I
3: really know that there there is a more of a meta game there. I just think on your first plays, it will feel very flowcharty. Oh, I see. Because there is a gaming way because there is only one card of every place and you can sort of track what has been delivered and what hasn't because because once someone travels a track, oh, I it see. becomes public. And so you, you can sort of – Card mention, counting basically. Yeah, you can sort of count the cards, track, hmm. and and sort of know what is going to come up and there's definitely more there through subsequent plays.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean the difference between say Seville and Madrid – is sufficiently insubstantial from that perspective. So the fact that Madrid's already come out of the deck and Seville hasn't, eh, I don't know that I'll necessarily pay attention to that. I do actually want to mention one other thing. I was a little bit concerned about my generally poor understanding of European geography was going to be a substantial hindrance. As it was, I didn't feel that shook out. I I was able to figure out where things were relatively quickly, and free ride for something that's relatively themeless in terms of pick up and deliver. It's decided to stick to a theme, which is to say, Art Nouveau and historical public art pieces erected overwhelmingly in the nineteenth century. So every city is represented by some sort of famous art piece that was completed at that time, and I as opposed not to the map, so you know exactly where it is. <laughs> Like even like how Fair many enough. years
3: ago the cards had a little mini map so you knew what it was talking about. But no, not in twenty. I thought it
2: was kind of charming. I respect your misgivings. Maybe the card should have been full size. I think this still would have fit on the on the table reasonably well enough. And, and choose... then they could have had both the art piece and the and a little mini map of Europe just in case you didn't know where Lisbon was. And
3: definitely choose like cities that have almost identical names and put three of them right beside each other. That's... Oh come
2: on, Budapest and Bucharest. You can Blame them for that. (laughs) Ah! All right. So that was Free Ride by Friedman Freeze. So this is a uh, special request from a patron. Frank has has requested a review of Embryo Machine. I have to say that Embryo Machine is the kind of thing that when you see it lying on someone's porch gives you the courage to break laws and have utter disdain for the welfare of others. It's the kind of game that is just the right size that says, hey, even though I don't belong to you, you can tuck it under your arm and just run away unencumbered. So I'd have to say that I'd give it 10 handcuffs out of 10. Easily stealable. Definitely inducible for crime. Happy now, Frank? Are you happy? Is that what you wanted, Frank? My copy of Embryo Machine got stolen from my portion. I'm not
3: happy about it. I think that's what probably happened. He he knows where you live. And he asked you. He wanted that game. So he, like, hinted that he wanted you to review it. In order to get me off the trail? And then
2: he waited. He's rubbing salt in the wound? Yes. Give me back my game, Frank.
3: After that great game,
2: <laughs> we
3: played a new Phil Walker Harding game called Monolith with giant chunky QB blocks, Tetris, three-dimensional. This is put out by Seamon Games. And guess what? It wasn't a Kickstarter. That's weird. <laughs> I know. And it was it was great. It felt a little bit a little bit like patchwork, right? Because you know, you're moving along and you could, you know. If there was more of a penalty, that would be a little more interesting, right? If, for moving along further? Mo- yeah. For, there's
2: basically a, a big rondelle. You can draft the P, the block that's one, two, three, or four spaces clockwise. And as Walker says, there's no real penalty for going faster. That would make it
3: much more interesting. But anyway, and there was all sorts of different goals that you could achieve, you know, certain shapes or ways to build it or finishing levels faster than everyone
2: else. And it was, it was a, a great little filler. It's, it felt a lot to me like 3D Baron Park, you know? So Phil Walker Harding has done a number of very approachable polyomino games. And I think that it has a number of assets that Baron Park doesn't, namely the three dimensional aspect. One downside is that there are uh, a lot fewer bears in Monolith than there are in Baron Park. I didn't keep an accurate running count, but I'd have to say that Monolith's zero bears is a smaller amount of bears. And I feel that there's slightly more player interaction in the game of Baron Park because you there's a competition to snatch up the tiles faster. The tiles get less valuable as things goes on. Uh, there was a little bit, a tiny little bit of player interaction in Monolith insofar as the quicker you were to accomplish certain goals, the more points you would get. Uh, but here we're talking about kind of yeah, the, dif- and the
3: difference but yeah, the difference wasn't that great.
2: Yes. So is this the kind of thing that you need if you already have a Phil Walker Harding, or even if you're satisfied with a polyomino game from an Uwe Rosenberg, for example? Uh, possibly not. As somebody with a voracious appetite for trying new little polyomino experiences, I found it quite neat. One aspect of variability from each game is that there's going to be a new kind of structure that you're expected to build. The structure does not resemble what we would call an earth structure, even though it is labeled like an earth structure, but it nonetheless forces you to build in different ways and prioritize different styles of building. And so I I thoroughly enjoyed Monolith. It is uh, probably what you would call a, a, you know, a bagatelle. It was an effervescent sort of, you're not going to remember it in a few weeks, but I would be very, very happy to play at any given moment, very much like Baron Park. Just so. That was Monolith by Phil Walker Harding. Got to to play a game called Arcana Rising, generously, uh, temporarily donated by Sidewinder. This is by Tim Armstrong, put up by Gray Fox, and this is kind of the antidote to a lot of the games we saw in the latter half of the 2010s. You know, the latter half of the 2010s was just a wash in monotonous cookie-cutter, tableau-builder games where you draft some cards, you play them out to a tableau, and maybe you run an engine, maybe you don't. Arcana Rising is a drafting, tableau-builder, engine-running game, but... It knows that one of the key priorities in running a game like that is you need to force some kind of short to long-term trade-offs, which it does in a very clever way, and it had best get in and get out before outstaying its welcome. The way that it forces trade-offs is when you're drafting cards, you're drafting a card to play that turn. You're not drafting a hand that you could then play later on or what have you, and as a consequence, it really focuses what it is you want to be doing and it also focuses the hate drafting because you either take a card and play it or You hate draft and run a portion of your engine. So you get to look at the cards and say, okay, this is a gold card. It's a really good gold card. Oh, but gold has already been run this round. I'm only going to run it once more this round two turns from now. So I don't want to take this card. Mm, Maybe not. And those kinds of trade-offs that the sort of the way that it inflected the drafting, I found genuinely clever and engaging. And I felt that it made the drafting simultaneously more important, even though I had less control and less strategic access to a hand of cards.
3: Had a slight sort of It's a Wonderful World vibe to it because you sort of had to time when you were going to play cards and when certain things were going to run like that. Yes. And, and there was quite a bit of different strategy in the cards and, you know, in how to generate your victory points.
2: Yeah, that part I was a little less impressed by, honestly. Well, I mean,
3: like, in the time that it would, you know, it takes to play, like, in order to get... That much, you know, variation. I thought it did a pretty good
2: job. Right, but I, th- I found the variation mostly to be superficial. Uh, only having played the once, I really felt that my point engine just kind of fell from the sky. And I watched as other people didn't have a point engine fall from the sky. I would contrast this with, again, a Tom, Tom Lehman game. Now, granted, this is possibly because they just have similar titles and almost identical themes. But in the game of Res Arcana, you're really forced to figure out how you're going to get your points going and then force the end game. Comparable length, comparable low footprint, low MSRP quick, engaging tableau builder that really doesn't take much time at all and is very accessible in terms of rules load. But again, the difference between a Tom Lehman game and a lot of other games isn't even necessarily so much in terms of the mechanisms, is that Tom Lehman knows how to make a deck, Tom Lehman knows what cards to put in, what cards not to put in, and how to make sure that you're going to have a curated experience, even when there's tremendous variability in terms of the cards you might pull off the top. So, would I play Arcana Rising again? Absolutely. I don't think it's in the same league, though, as Res Arcana, which, shockingly enough, I find be its closest competitor because again the quality of the cards the interest in terms of what to do with the various cards and when i honestly i felt that the as the cards were coming in the only serious trade-off i ever had was do i want to play the best card in this hand or do i want to run my engine that that tension from the mechanisms was cool but the cards themselves i did not find interesting
3: true it's it's got the usual tropes of when to switch that on right that's you know, true. When to build your engine and then when to turn that engine into a victory point
2: generator. But a lot of that as well is determined by your preferred graduated decks, right? You have the round one deck, which has precious few ways to score points, the round two deck, which starts to get more into the point generation, and then the round three deck. I was concerned, actually in round one, I was looking at the cards and thinking, geez, how am I going to pivot to making points? And the answer was, the cards are going to tell you. And so that again I think falls under my general objection. These Again, these are minor objections for a 30-minute game that has probably as many satisfying game uh, decisions as many 45- to 90-minute tableau builders from about five to eight years ago. So make no mistake, Arcana Rising I thought was perfectly pleasing. I'm just saying I don't think it's a top tier of the genre.
3: And that is Arcana Rising. Showed Mark a game called Sky Mines. We talked about, I talked about this last week. This is designed by Alexander Fister. It's like a reprint. And Victor Kabilka. And Victor Kabilka. This is a reprint of Mombasa? Mombasa and has very close ties to Blackout Hong Kong. It's published by Deep Print Games.
2: Mark, what did you think? I thought it was uh, very Fisterian, which is to say... A little bit of clever card manipulation, although less than I remembered. I think, again, that was one of the innovations of Blackout Hong Kong that I quite appreciated. The way your cards just move around in terms of their purchase, their activation, their cycling on your board, is slightly more in-depth in Blackout Hong Kong, surprisingly, and I actually really liked it. In Sky Mines, as in Mombasa, you just play them into columns, and every turn you take one column back, and so you, you, you swap between columns, and that's more or less it. On top of the purchasing and selling of cards, which to be fair is a little bit more elaborate than it is in Black on Hong Kong. And you're moving up a couple tracks, you partially you're moving up the tracks for points, partially moving up the tracks so you can unlock more card slots, which is extremely Fisterian. There's a map, and the map is bigger than it needs to be, and you're moving around on the map and It's it important. It's,
3: it's it is important. And it, I think it's very much a way to get those one or two things you need for that turn. Like oh, sure. If, if you feel as though you're going to be short a coin or short a certain thing that's going to advance you even further that turn, the map is the place where you're going to find it.
2: Right. This is all uh, ways to say that in, in very Fisterian fashion mostly what it is is about wrestling with your board. That is that is one of the prime aspects. One of the innovations that Sky Mines brings that Mombasa did not have is this notion of having the most of a given symbol at the top of a round, which further introduced some timing considerations because as you activate various things your cards get face down, and suddenly you're not in the majority anymore. You start off the round with more energy than anybody else, but you want to use that energy first but then you look over and say, eh, but maybe you want to claim that energy bonus. Sometimes you don't want to claim the energy bonus because you have a paucity of special action markers. Anyway, that part I thought was interesting and neat. Having an additional resource to manipulate on uh, as well on top of that was enjoyable. I just he, his games aren't especially tracky, but they're trackier than I would like them to be. Mombasa and Sky Mines are both very similar in that you're mostly just trying to scrabble up these two tracks that are thematically a hash and don't really have any satisfying player interaction attached to them, and a lot of the iconography and theming. Although not tragically offensive, <laughs> like it was a Mombasa, made precious little sense to anything. So this is a game about crypto bros and some sort of weird dystopian Fantasy of of unrestrained economic expansion with no government regulation. I'm sorry, scratch that. The theme is a bit problematic. <laughs> it's not as bad as Mombasa. It's kind of a two steps forward, one step back situation. Uh, so it's this weird, like Elon Muskie wet dream of a, of a kind of a board game full of cryptocurrency and 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 weird. Uh, unregulated exploitation, so... I'm lucky that none of the theme comes through in the game. So. Yes, fortunately, yes, the gameplay is not only themeless, but this s- demonstrates the initial point, right? When Mombasa got published and everyone was left scratching their heads like, dude, you-, you clearly know that mining exploitation in the 19th century by Europeans in Africa was basically some of the worst horrors that humanity has ever visited on humanity. Why didn't you retheme it to something else? You can retheme it to anything. To which Fister says, hold my beer, clearly I can, and then still can't get it quite right. Anyway, it's strange. It's strange, it's Funny, I'm sure we'll have more to say about this as time goes on. It was fine. Yeah. I, I I I like Alexander Fister well enough. He's not my favorite. I will happily play Fister Fister games, but he's not quite my preferred version of medium heavy euro designer. I prefer Blackout Hong Kong. I probably prefer uh, Great Western Trail, but I have to say that Sky Mines and Mombasa, uh, in terms of gameplay, I, I, I'll, I'll never play Mombasa again. It, it's it's whitewashing of colonial history is just so bizarre it gets me frustrated and angry on a visceral level uh but sky mines i just find baffling from a thematic level so i'm perfectly willing to laugh at it i'm looking i i still enjoy it i'm
3: looking forward to trying the different boards there's different uh, company boards you can put out so i'm looking forward to trying and see how much that mixes up the
2: right game. for the stock element correct and i find it as far as the stock element goes it's it's pretty okay like it leads to the sort of collusion and emergent partnerships that stock games can give while well, at the same time you don't ever get completely locked out like this isn't really, Sky Mines and Mombasa have never really been a game about I'm going to go heavy in yellow and I'm just going to hit yellow as hard as I possibly can and because I hit yellow harder than anybody else I'm going to win because yellow is the best company. It's like no if you spend all your time making yellow great, other people will buy into yellow and profit off your hard work so you have to diversify, you have to be clever about it so the man, the way it manages stocks is one of the things that I appreciate about the game system and knowing knowing how
3: not to bloat your deck i'm still very terrible at the game but that that's that hopefully with a few more plays <laughs> i won't be
2: <laughs> awful it's not about whether you how you win or lose walker
3: well it's just being frustrated when when you know you set yourself up and then you realize you're like one card short or it's like no wait i can only play this many cards this turn and Oh yeah. Or if yeah. someone jumps, you know, one head to turn it. It's like, okay, well, no one's gonna need
2: that, so
3: I'm gonna do this first, and then someone takes, you know, anyway.
2: Fister games are very, very much into that Euro style of daylight, dollar short, can't get it done. It doesn't require the same level of pre planning as much as some splatter games, as much as even Mind Clash's Tricarion does. But nonetheless, it's one of those things where it's like I need three resources to get this done. I've got two of them in spades, and I'm short by one, so my entire turn's off. Yes, I threw my hands up several times. It's true. And that's Sky Mines. That is Sky Mines. So over the course of the week, I got to try all three of Reiner Knizia's Criminal Capers collection. This is a set of three small box games that were put up by Bytewing Games after a successful Kickstarter. Bytewing named after the fact that it was established by some dentists. So it is not something crude. Get your minds out of the gutter. Thank you very much. So, uh, first off, there is Soda Smugglers. Soda Smugglers is the English printing of a 2019 game called Hesavade. This is kind of, sort of, a version or riff on Sheriff of Nottingham. Rainer Canizia claims not to play other people's games, and yet every so often you get a game that seems very similar to other kinds of games, at least in terms of central conceit. I'm not accusing him of ripping off game mechanisms or even game ideas. I'm just saying it's very evocative of... Something along the lines of Sheriff of Nottingham where you're trying to smuggle goods. Somebody has the opportunity to check you. If they're wrong, then it's your benefit. If they're right, they get to steal all the stuff you were trying to steal yourself. So it's a game of opportunism. It is a game of law enforcement through the lens of entrepreneurial enterprises, as my father would say. And in Soda Smugglers, everybody has one or two opportunities to be the inspector. And this is actually one of my criticisms of the game from as a competitive enterprise. Now, it's a large player count game, it can accommodate up to eight players. So whenever I sit down to a game of that size, unless it's a game of something like Sidereal Confluence, and even then, I don't try to, I don't tend to view it as a as, as a competitive exercise in the same way that I view other games. Not that I view any games as highly competitive enterprises anyway, at least I don't think so. In the context of Soda Smugglers, if you're playing with a certain high number, you only get to be the inspector once. Which is a bit unfortunate, because being the inspector is when you have the chance of getting lots and lots of points. I would, I think I'd want to try it again with a smaller player count and see if that evens it out. Because then you would have two opportunities that seems twice as good, actually. And possibly more balanced in terms of being able to uh, cycle out your wins and losses. Because if you just have a bad round as the inspector, you're out of it. There's no point in, in, in really considering yourself in the game anymore. But it's a game of bluff, and and, uh, there, there are some cute elements in the rules. Like, for example, if you're an inspector and you arrest somebody falsely, the rules specifically say that in addition to giving them two points from your stash, you have to apologize sincerely. There were some people at our table walker that did not follow that rule. Rude. Very rude. I hate it when people cheat, especially when they flagrantly violate a rule that is as adorable as that one. So people, people, some people got a little bit into the apologies. It was great. <laughs> I th- look, I thoroughly enjoyed Soda Smugglers, but uh, of the three games, I'd have to say that it was probably my least favorite. And I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Sheriff of Nottingham either. But you know, one virtue of Soda Smugglers is that much more flexible in terms of player count and much faster. And also, the theme is sufficiently absurd. The idea that there's only a certain amount of soda that you're allowed to bring across the border uh, that people immediately get into it in terms of the ridiculousness. So (laughs) that was Soda Smugglers.
3: The next one we got to play was Hot Bleed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and I wish they just they had left it unfortunately they cleared it up in the description of the game but I thought it would be very interesting if they just like threw it out as hot lead or hot lead because both applied and for the theming that it was like cops and robbers it's a nice thing.
2: Rorschach test for what your views on law enforcement because exactly. on the cover of the game it says hot L-E-A-D and there is a picture of an elephant police officer with a gun Yeah. so, so yeah. initially we weren't served but it turns out it's hot lead and all
3: three of these games super fast to get to the table, very, you know, light rules load, very kind like simple, simple easy decisions. So you're sort of blind, I don't would you say blind bidding? Kind of, yeah. Yeah, I guess you're you you have uh, the cards go from 1 to 52, 55, 55. So you have had 11 cards and you're trying to Sort of win tricks, I guess you could say. Kind
2: of? Yeah, kind of. And well, but you sometimes have- you want to lose because at the start of every round, at the start of every card play, there's a there's a, a, a flop of four cards. Sometimes you want the last card. Sometimes you want the second to last card. Sometimes you want the first one. But So what people are going for is kind of all over the map, and you don't really know whether someone is going to consider 16 a low card or a mid card. And so there's a lot going on in terms of trying to get the card you want to get despite that I found there to be a shocking amount of control which is to say there was a little I was expecting zero control and as it happens there was a little bit of control
3: yeah you're trying to get you're trying to win three cards of every suit because you know that would be maximum points you not only do you get like a bonus 10 points but you also get if you're the first two we'll get you a sheriff's star and then there's all sorts of cool modifiers that came out too like negative points and if you didn't bid correctly all in all, very inoffensive,
2: would play it again any time. Like many Knitsia games, a lot of the intricacies come in the scoring. You want to get to three of a suit because that gives you a bonus, but if you get the fourth, and this actually is pretty thematic, if you get the fourth, you're into deep Walker. You're reckless. You lose all the cards. You're off the handle. You're, you're off the handle? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Give me your gun and your badge, you're off the case. So the fourth card get, strips it entirely, so you want to be three. Getting to two is great, especially if it's fast. Getting to three is even better, but that fourth card, whoo. No good. And so that that's where the virtue of there being a little bit of control. If there was too much control, well, then there would never be a risk. So there's a lot of risk management in Hot Lead, which is to say, again, it's a very Knitsa-type game. And this is the only game of the Criminal Capers collection that is not a reprint. It must be so interesting. So, Reiner Knizia is, is, not only is he a game designer, he's a business enterprise unto himself. And any time a publisher comes to him, I'm sure he's got, like, here are the things that I am pushing as Reiner Knizia. I have this game that's been out of print since 2006. I've got this other game that's been out of print since 2012. And I've got this other thing that I just designed yesterday. You can have all three. <laughs> or something on those lines. He probably reaches blindly behind
3: him on the shelf. Of-
2: no, oh, no. I'm sure it's very <laughs> rigoros- <laughs> rigorously planned out. Nothing about it is random. I am pretty confident about that. So Hot Lead was the new one. And then the last one that that we get to try was Puma Fiosi, which is a reprint of 2004's Rooster Booster. And to be frank, I wasn't a huge fan of the artwork in... Pumafiosi, the artwork in Hot Lead was great. All the different anthropomorphic animal police officers did it for me in a way that the Pumafiosi didn't although I do love the pun in the title and the soda smugglers, the fact that they were animals was just entirely extraneous the different kinds of soda, though parenthetically, were truly weird. There was Granny Smith bathwater, which was supposed to be an apple soda but I don't want to be drinking any Granny's bathwater, thank you very, very much anyway, moving on Uh, the Puma Fiosi game is a game where you're kind, it's kind of like a trick-taking game, but you want to be second highest in every trick. But even then, you're not even necessarily sure you want to win it, because then you promote the card used to win to this hierarchy. But every time you get bumped from the hierarchy, you lose a point. It so happened that this ended up being very, very consequential. Uh, you, at the end of the game, Walker, had far more Pumas on the hierarchy than I did. Namely, you, quote unquote, won many, many more tricks. Uh, but at the end of the game, you were just drowning in negative points because people kept bumping you. Yes. And by people, I mean Huey. He's mean. He's extremely, well, he, he completely ran away with the game. He ran like a glorious puma, he did. Now, on top of that, there's
3: a bunch of tokens that you can put on your cards, like, either to protect them or to make them a multiplier. But you must be careful because the multiplier is also the multiplier of negative points as well.
2: I really liked the risk management in terms of trying to figure out whether or not you wanted to go in the hierarchy and where. The problem is, is that since you want to be second highest – a lot of weird things happen in the trick take, uh, taking space. So you only have a hand of three cards, which is very, very, very restrictive, especially when the deck is from one to 55. And if you have to lead a trick and all your cards are high 40s or 50s, as was the case several times, what you're doing is you're just handing a gift to somebody else. If I lead a 49 and you've got like the 45, congratulations. It's birthday time for you because you can play that high card and it's going to get to the hierarchy and probably stay there. So I'm, I, this may be the one that has the most luck of the draw. And I'm vaguely curious about the rooster theming <laughs> Rooster booster seems to me be a better title than Pumafiosi I mean it's, it's got a better animal sort of not quite pun but anyway <laughs> that's enough about animal animal titles uh, it's certainly not as uh, thrilling as one of uh, Kiitsa's perhaps best rhyming titles karate Tamati which I still think is great. So, those are the three games from the Criminal Capers collection. I think as far as fillers go, they're all solid Knitzia fillers, but has done a lot better, I think, honestly, in terms of the filler space. Of the three of them, I think my favorite was Hot Lead. Did you have a preference? Walker didn't try Soda Smugglers. He just tried Pumafiosi and Hot Lead. Oh, between
3: those, I think Hot Lead was the most, because I think he had the most control, I felt, in Hot Lead. Than- yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, Puma Fiosi, we both felt constrained by our hands often, and we are just giving gifts to people are getting punished for reasons we didn't quite understand. For not drawing off the top of the deck correctly. Yeah, we should have, we should have done a better job. It's really our Agreed. fault. I feel guilty. Lastly for me
3: is Tiny Turbo Cars.
2: This was designed by Helmer Hawk, Alessandro Manuini, Jonathan Panada, Laura Severino, and Julia Tamagni.
3: So this was a Kickstarter that was just fulfilled by Horrible Guild, and it has a, a neat little controller. It's a sort of a slide tile so cute. Slide tile puzzle. A four by four grid. And everyone like mixes up their controller, and then you hand them off and then you have then you start doing your program. It's like Robo Rally style. You're going forward or backwards or left or right or firing a missile or jumping and you're trying to It's the middle two rows, so you're going to do eight commands during your turn. So you're frantically sliding these tiles around. Yeah,
2: you're exactly right. It it seems to be robo-rally via slide puzzle. Just so. And then...
3: When you think you're done, you put it down, you grab a tile, and as soon as there's only one tile left, you start doing a 10-second countdown, and that person has to finish, and then you run the programs. And I think with more people, that might be a little tedious, running through all the different programs, but I think if you're one person calling it out and one person moving the cars, I think you'll get through it very fast. The premise is you're, baby, you're being babysat by grandma, and she's fallen asleep, and you've decided to... Uh, Turn the whole house into this Hot Wheels racetrack and you're speeding around your Hot Wheels cars. And everyone has, you know, asymmetric powers. There's tons of different cars you can choose from. There's also special abilities on the on the track itself, you know, being bogged down on carpet or, you know, doing crayon speed you know, boost all sorts of fun stuff. I'm sold it. it, Yeah. And it, it just delivers what you think it does. It's not, you know, it's not going to break any records or anything. It would be the greatest, but it, it, it delivers on what it promises. And I think it, it is a great entry into the sort of racing genre,
2: the quality and charm of the components. Plus the commitment to the theme makes me want to try it. Even though the mere fact that the key driving element, no pun intended is a slide puzzle fills me with what could perhaps best be described as dread. <laughs> I, like,
3: I like how they did the sort of like turning as well because the top of the track is red and the bottom of the track is blue and so they've color-coded the tiles as well. So, you know, if you use red ah. arrows, it'll go towards the top and blue arrows will go to the bottom. So it's a nice easy way to A, when you're trying to figure it out, slide them into the right spot and B, when you're calling it out, it's easy to move the cars around. How much carnage is there? Not as much as I would want. Oh, that's too bad. Especially not as much. Well... I guess I can say there's a lot in Robo Rally, but the Robo Rally games take eight hours. So yeah, well, so- no, that's
2: it. That that was one of the. So there's a spectrum, right? Robo Rally, I think we both feel is too far on the Carnage spectrum, whereby the slightest miscalculation by anybody could mean that everyone's turns more or less become somewhat random. And then there are games that are just you know very stolid, and you plan everything out, and things just work as they're supposed to. And then there's the sort of meaty middle where. There's just the right amount of Carnage. I'm thinking of games actually like Gaslands. For me, I'm thinking a little bit of thing of some games of Space Alert. Sometimes that manages that level. I'm thinking also of specifically games of Galaxy Trucker, right? Which usually has just the right amount of nonsense going on where it's very, very difficult if you've calibrated the difficulty right for everyone to run a clean run. But then again, even while you're being pummeled, you usually feel like a game is still going on. So...
3: This is a, a little bit like Rob Rally where you just you're firing straight forward and we we're only playing with 3 cars. So I'm sure with more uh-huh. more people on the track there will be more carnage. And it does have an interesting sort of mechanism for that as well. When you bang into things or get shot, you start the game with 3 batteries and as you take damage you lose those 3 batteries and then you immediately have to skip the next three commands and then they're all, they all charge again and then ah. off you go. So no player elimination, just sort of like miss a bunch of your program as your battery's charging. Then you're shooting across the track again. I'm keen to give it a try. Tiny Turbo Cars by
2: Horrible Guild. Finally for me, I played a game called Terra Nova. Terra Nova is a simplified version of the 2012, very, very popular Jens Droegemuller and Helga Ostertag Terra Mystica. Terra Mystica and, to a certain extent, its redeveloped sci-fi cousin Gaia Project, have always felt very vaguely unsatisfying to me. A little bit too overblown, a little bit too overlong, a little bit too much to do about nothing. Because at the end of the day, you're just spending about two and a half hours to put out a couple more buildings, and that always left me with a some somewhat difficult to define sense of so what. When hearing about the premise of Terra Nova, that it's more or less Terra Mystica, but simpler. A person who has played many, many, many games of Terra Mystica said, who's this game for? To which the answer is, well, me, mostly. Because (laughs) there are... I, I will admit the premise of the question. This is not, I think, a game that is apt to find a wide audience. There are people who have played Terra Mystica and like it, and they play a lot of Terra Mystica, generally speaking, and or Gaia Project. And then there are the people who didn't like Terra Mystica, and generally speaking, people who bounce off of more complicated games like that just don't want to play heavy Euros. And so making a simplified version or a... a, a Even still, a medium-weight Euro version might capture more people, but it seems like it's going after a, a, a frighteningly small piece of the pie, or as one American idiom I've been exposed to, it seems to be slicing the salami awfully thin. At any rate... I, nonetheless, approached Terra Nova with a fair degree of enthusiasm because if I'm going to be playing a game that's basically small ball, I'd much rather it have two currencies rather than five, and if I'm just going to be playing a game where at the end of the day you're just going to be putting out buildings, and the winner's probably going to put out 12 uh, buildings slightly smarter than your buildings, which may or be maybe only about as 10, I'd rather the game be about 45 to 60 minutes rather than about 90 to 240. And so, to that extent, I found Terra Nova very satisfying. I did prefer Terra Nova to Terra Mystica. Is it the kind of thing that I would necessarily go back to over and over? Probably not. Uh, But I certainly didn't get the same vague sense of disquiet and or overcomplication that I got from Terra Mystica. There's also the fact that the races, uh, the fantasy races in Terra Nova seem to be a little bit toned down, which to my mind is an asset actually because one of the bugbears of Terra Mystica especially, and Gaia Project to a lesser, a lesser extent, is the fact that those in the know will tell you, you really just can't all pick a faction. You really have to bid victory points because everybody knows they ain't balanced. Fine, whatever. Again, I'm not, I don't have that level of seriousness with respect to those games. I am but a filthy casual in the land of those games, as I am in most games. So, Terra Nova's lower barrier to entry, lower stakes, lower time commitment, lower cognitive load was exactly what I was looking for. And, of course, best part of Terra Nova no more tracks. Goodbye, tracks. They didn't make sense. They were silly and extraneous. And now they're gone. And so, I look, Terra Nova is very much the modification of Terra Mystica for me. It nonetheless doesn't get quite to top tier. I'd happily play again. I'd happily show it. And uh, it's especially interesting for people like me who like to see ideas evolve, you know, liking to see games in a system iterate, liking to see a given... Notion transplanted to a different theme or a slightly different system or altering things, you know, the same kind of joy that those 18xx players always get by by thrilling to slight differentiations in terms of how the stock market floats or how and when trains rust, but, you know, in a different style of game. So Terra Nova was interesting. I don't know who I could recommend it to, though. As as I say, I concede it's got a very, very narrow audience. If you, too, bounced off of Terra Mystica, but thought, oh, this is a kind of interesting conceit about terraforming and spending resources, and I like the power cycling, but, you know, I wish that it were faster and it's slightly, uh, well, a lot cleaner, and those Cult tracks are dumb, give Terranova a shot. It probably won't set your world on fire, but I suspect if you're like me, which is to say a very, very small audience, Terranova might satisfy you in a way that Terra Mystica never did. That is Terra Nova, not designed by any of the designers of Terra Mystica, designed by Andreas Foll, published by Cosmos this year.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies
3: And as a segue into the news and why it does matter, Mark, we were playing more Oath Sworn. And we are also have a new show for our, our patrons only. It is called Wired, and it is all about our adventures in the Oathsworn world. So if you're interested in that at all, tune in. First episode is coming out soon.
2: On the topic of patrons, uh, we launched a the opportunity for non-U.S. patrons to enjoy the fruits of Target, namely the Target-exclusive Horizons of Spirit Island. I can proudly say that we have selected our uh, two individuals who will be able to benefit from my muling from American retail. You have your Patreon message messages sent to you already, if you have sent me a message to try to participate. Check your messages. You may be one of the lucky ones. Thank you to everyone who participated by sending me your spirit names. So, Mark, Tragically
3: Looper is a game that came out quite a while ago when I enjoyed it. Now Z-Man Games is putting out a new tragedy Looper, new tragedies, and I really enjoyed... Sort of like that puzzle kind of thing that I really enjoy. They have all sorts of different characters, and they all act in a certain way. And then seeing them be moved around by the game master, you are need, you need to make inferences and figure out who the killer is or stuff like that. Very much looking I mean, forward. You,
2: you say killer, it could be any number of weird things it's that true, happened. True enough, but to to make it easy, yes,
3: yes. So. <laughs> I'm I'm very much looking forward to it because when it first came out, the rule book was a disaster and it was, you know, it was badly translated and, and didn't make much sense.
2: So I'm hoping that all of that is cleaned up and I'm hoping for a much cleaner type system. And it's a whole bunch of new cases in English for the very first time because in Japan, the series saw a lot more success, many, many more expansions, a lot of cases that never made its way to English. This is by the same, uh, well, design team as those that did Sakura Arms, Back of Fire, a very, very talented group. And I I enjoyed Tragedy Looper. The one part that I, I, I thought never really sung to me is it's got this really, really great thematic conceit of individuals who can travel through time and they're trying to stop a disaster from happening. The problem is, is that the, the weird way that information enters the system, the, the conceit falls apart. It's like, oh, the loop is over. And then you ask, okay, why? What terrible thing happened? We were right there. It's like, no, you don't know yet. It just, it's over. We'd do it again now. Well,
3: you make inferences of why it was over, though.
2: Sure, based on a weird matrix of spreadsheety things. It's uh, yeah, and a lot of the narrative, even when you knew the details of who, what, when, where, why, how you would then read the case and say, like, well, actually this was because of an alien abduction between a celestial being who uh, witnessed an alien abduction and then reported back to the alien's god, who then is like, this is very strange and bears very little resemblance to what actually happened on the board. Anyway, I just found the, the disconnect a little bit off-putting and I'm not as into deduction games as you are. But yeah, this is absolutely if you like deduction games, you should really try Tragedy Looper. It's a very interesting instantiation of the genre. It's very
3: anime-based. Even There's one still going now that is almost I, exactly identical where a young man comes back to an island where a murder occurred and and these weird alien demons are taking people over and and he'll get killed and then has to start all over again and and he gets to remember what happened so he can manipulate time a little bit and and learn more things every time he comes back very interesting very much
2: like tragedy looper also edge of tomorrow is a criminally underrated movie it's true it is criminally underrated what a great movie so Michael Crossman had a successful Kickstarter for 100 Weapons, which was not a particularly evocative title, but this was for 100 Weapons STL digital files scaled to Matchbox and Hot Wheels cars. So it was basically a Gaslands campaign, <laughs> anything, everything but name. I pledged for that happily and received the digital files on time as promised. And now he's got his follow-up. 100 post-apocalyptic vehicular combat accessories. These are things like rams. These are things like special tires. These are things like armor plate. These are for all the non-weapon they elements. like big
3: claws Were
2: or- Oh yeah, there's a big claw. Sweet. I can't remember if it was in the first campaign or this one. But at any rate, you can uh, find them find them on the Kickstarter under 100 post-apocalyptic vehicular combat accessories. For those of you that would very much like to customize your Hot Wheels and Matchbox cars for Gaslands purposes, but are not nearly as crafty as all those people on the internet who swear up and down that it's so easy and so trivial, like, look, first you go to your bits box, which you may or may not have, you use your Dremel, which you may or may not have, and then deploy some of these paint things, which you may or may not have, and then use all these skills. Skills which you definitely don't have because you've been clumsy ever since kindergarten, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And now it's so easy. No, 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 no. Do you know what easy is? Pledge on Kickstarter and having a good friend print it out for you on the three D printer and then gluing it to a car. That is easy. On Kickstarter now.
3: Last for me, back Mark, back in twenty twenty, I talked about a game, a board game coming out from Simon called The Last of Us. Are there are there even records from that far ago? I, I know, right? In the in the before times. It never came out and there's no real news about what's going on. I'm sure there is, but I didn't care. <laughs> well, I mean like if there's no make, news. Well there might have been news,
2: it, but I don't care. This is the news now. That's actually my attitude towards a lot of naughty dog output. It's there is like, well, there might be news, but I don't I don't care.
3: There is uh, Themeborn, theme born designer Alex Crispin and Thomas Pike and James Sheldon. They put out a game called Escape from the Dark Sector. Now they have a new game on Kickstarter called The Last of Us Escape the Dark. So I guess they decide, how can I make a game that's completely unappealing and
2: uninteresting? And they succeeded. Escape the Dark Sector was good and full of personality. Why on earth would they want to set themselves up with The Last of Us? It looks very much like just a re-theme.
3: I shouldn't say anything because I haven't read the rules. Uh, But from the pictures, it looks very similar.
2: It's all just black and white. Very drab looking, and I shouldn't judge it because of that. <laughs> well, because the, the art in Escape the Dark Sector and Escape the Dark Castle was really good, even though it was black and white. It was just very, very effective. I can merely report my favorite tweet on the topic, which was someone asking, but does the board game come with someone to grab your hair and scream into your face, have feelings, this is important. <laughs> and that is on Kickstarter now. It has such a odd box cover. I just don't,
3: <laughs> I, I don't get it. <laughs>
2: Also on Kickstarter right now is a new edition of Gatefall. Gatefall is a game released by Jack Dyer that is a charming and very rules light hybrid of deck-building and miniatures game combat. And we've played it once. I keep meaning to go back to it. It was a very, very charming experience. And now it comes in uh, a new edition. The new edition is a much, much smaller board, much, much smaller box with standees. Or you can get the original edition as well, which has... I don't even want to call them miniatures. You know how sometimes, listeners, you see something on the side of the box where it says, this is the actual size, and you think you get a sense of how big something is, and then you see it in person and say, I was way off. This thing is huge. That is the experience one has with the miniatures of Gatefall. There's not a whole lot of them. We're not talking about a massive quantity. But they're real big. <laughs> so you can either get the original version with the big miniatures, uh, charmingly called Bigatures by the Hanverker, or you can get the new new version with standees, which is cheaper. Despite that, the one with the, the Bigatures is still reasonably priced. It's just, you know, some people have shelf space as a premium and they're trying to get away from miniatures anyway. I have the original edition, so I'm kind of stuck with that. But it's a charming little game and uh, put out by an independent designer who clearly cares about what he's doing. And it's been supported in the past with expansions, and it looks like it's going to get more expansions in the future. That is Gatefall by yeah. Jack Dyer. It's a great card-based skirmish game
3: where you're only manipulating two characters usually at the most.
2: That is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the topic of the week, which is dealing with rules mistakes. Walker? So, Mark. Walker. Let's let's, let's deal with the Grecian in the room, shall we? L- you going you gonna to set up the scenario? All right,
3: so there is a game called Lords of Hellas. There is a game called Lords of Hellas. In Lords of Hellas, there are lots
2: of monsters. There are. There is a particular monster. There's the monster sitting to my left at the table. There's the monster that was sitting to my right at the table. There was the monster sitting across from me at the table. And there were some monsters on the board as
3: well, Mark. Eh. One particular monster called Medusa. Now, there is a rule from
2: Medusa that everyone at the table knew. The rule for Medusa is new is a strong word. I don't want to get involved in the philosophical discussions of what knowledge constitutes. It's true. That everyone had been
3: informed of. It's true, including everyone. Let's let's make sure we remember everyone. Like you like, like, like Gary Medusa, Oldman and the
2: professional everyone? Exactly.
3: So, the rule for Medusa is that uh, troops may not leave her space. They sort of locks them in. They cannot as though them. she
2: turned them to stone.
3: As though she turned them to stone. And then throughout the game she had been on the table for a while. This has probably led to the fact that everyone forgot about Medusa's power or even forgot that she was there. These are not points. Convenient. these, the, look, these are not points to any side of my argument. Memory can Not be that I have a side convenient. of an argument. This is not what I'm talking about. So someone attacked out of Medusa's territory, thereby wiping a person out of- A uh, person. A person. Yes. Uh, out of a sector of the map. Yes. And he shouldn't have been able to do that. So there was a rules mistake. Yes. And we dealt with it a certain way.
2: (laughs) I believe uh, when I raised the fact, immediately after the combat was over, I should say, another player was about to start their turn, but hadn't yet started. Correct. Right? So... I said, "Wait! You weren't allowed to do that. You couldn't have done that because you're 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 going from Medusa space." And I believe the response on the part of the table was, uh, "Yum yum yum! Salt from your tears. L two P. Get good." Agreed. Okay. All right. So now there's two sides to this. Well, there's I'm sure there's multiple sides. These are the two sides that
3: I uh, I have. Okay. Okay. Here, that the battle should have happened. That tr- uh, there's troops lost that should have been lost. There were cards spent that that didn't need to be spent. Yep. Uh lost you lost your presence in that area of the map. Yes. And uh everyone was aware of the rule. The other side is <laughs> the intent for the attack had been revealed. Yes. All right? Yes. Uh cards from people's hands were revealed that yes. were secret. Yes. Uh if we went back uh game tempo would be lost.
2: That's true. That's it. <laughs> Are there,
3: is there anything you'd like to add to either of those two sides of this, here's, of this here's, scenario?
2: Here's the thing. Uh, it's now mostly become, I think, I hope this is transparent. This is mostly just self-deprecating humor when I talk about giving me grease back. Here's why, uh, here's some broader context for, I, I think, this overall discussion. Because it's important to remember that, I mean, teaching games is easy and that everyone loves to do it. It's the favorite part of the hobby for, for many people. And it's really trivial. And, I mean, partially as a consequence, mistakes are invariably the product of negligence and or outright malice on the part of the rules explainer because otherwise they would have been able to take care of it. You know, furthermore, uh, you know, the person that usually gets the new games for that group, they do so for free. And uh, game the games that they get for free, they punch themselves, they organize themselves, they teach themselves to the person who gets those games. So remember, remember, every time anyone gets a, rules, a rule wrong... Uh, you should marshal fire and indignation and rage. They did it on purpose, with malicious intent, and they need to be punished appropriately. Let me just
3: go get my rubber boots. I don't want salt stains on my socks again. Okay. So with so this- I, I have good statements. Let's just read into those statements. I read these before, but this is a good time to read them as well. So you claimed you, you read the rule several times. Yeah. <laughs> um, while the game is being taught, make sure you always interrupt as many times as you can with dumb questions. If you have a rules question, you have you must wait until it's the teacher's turn so you can completely destroy the tempo of the game and interrupt his turn and ruin it for him. Their turn. And Their turn. Under no circumstances, ask for the rule book during downtime and make an effort to clarify <laughs> any questions you may have. The only answer to a rule is I don't agree with this. Well... <laughs> That sounds dumb. That's not how they did it in the video I watched. (laughs) If there's a rules discrepancy, act cool
2: until you find out that you didn't win the game. Then scream bloody bloody murder outrage. Here's why. Okay. Here is the the basis of my initial frustration with respect to the whole Grease incident. Because I agree with you. At the end of the day... We'll talk more about this in a moment. But at the end of the day, you're right that an intention had been revealed, which is fine. That, you know, if you, if, you, if you reveal your intentions, but then can't follow through them as a result of some other effect that you were unaware of, whatever, that's on you. But cards had been played. In other words, information that would have been secret had now entered the system. And a whole bunch of stuff had changed hands. And so, therefore, rolling back wouldn't have been feasible or desirable. Usually, my principle is you should always be willing to roll back any decision that someone has made on their turn up to and until some amount of random and or secret information has entered the system, right? Until they roll a die, until they pull a card, until they show a card, except for in some cases, roll it back, let them take it back, it doesn't matter. There are exceptions, of course. Uh, there are some games that specifically tell, tell you when people make mistakes, don't let them take them, take them back. Sidereal Confluence comes to mind because at the, there are a variety of good reasons for that. But getting back to Greece, here is why it's a bit of a problem, or at least why I felt it was a little bit more of a problem just then, whether or not we should roll back mistakes. I get very frustrated when I get the impression, and I should admit, I have a very bad temper, and it's been getting worse. I, I'm trying to work on it very, very hard. Uh, but I get very frustrated when I get the impression that I'm the only one at the table marshalling any cognitive load to run the game. And whenever I get the impression that someone is deliberately offloading cognitive load onto me when they could be shouldering it on behalf of themselves, I get real mad because again, it's the asking question just when it's about my turn. It's how does this ability of mine work without even reading the card first, it's the fact that this was a monster that was sitting in someone's territory and they were blithely ignorant of what the monster did and didn't care and clearly couldn't be bothered to read any of them. And all it's, it's always the relentlessly, how does this work? Without even saying, can I see the card? If you say, can I see the card, you read the thing and can't understand how it works, by all means. So that gets me a little bit miffed. Now, when in the context of rules mistakes and or rules questions... Does that justify my being, getting visibly frustrated? Never. I, I Almost never. Certainly not as often as I get visibly frustrated. And at this point, Walker is now nodding exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's legit. I, I'll admit, my threshold for frustration is way, way, way too low. I, like, I remember the time back when we were playing uh, Gloomhaven all the time. And the players I was playing Gloomhaven with would regularly say, how many hit points are left on that skeleton? When it's information that it's on the table, it's like you can't. I part of this, I I, I have to assume is my fault because I, I voluntarily take on this load to a certain extent. But then people just stop thinking for themselves and act as though I'm a game master. But you also government sometimes
3: people can can accept certain. Uh, loads on themselves to a certain degree and they're already trying to manipulate their decks and their cards and figure out their own characters and maybe that one extra step of of, of, of seeing the chart and which skeleton is which and how that corresponds to how many hit points they have left, maybe that's just too far for them.
2: I, I respect that. And it is indeed too far for me because every time I have to check to see how many hit points are left in that skeleton, my turn planning goes out the window, and then I feel like I'm holding up the game when I have to remember what's going on. the The trick is that the part where I I get a little bit mystified is at some game, and we're getting a little bit farther afield from from rules mistakes, but we'll, we'll we'll get back to it in a second. Is gamers who consistently seek out games for which they clearly can only run them when I'm run- when so- when I or someone else is running the till. In other words. If the person who accidentally took grease from me, even because they couldn't be bothered to, to, to either figure out or remember how Medusa works, preferred, sought out, suggested, requested later games, that would be a different story. That's not the case. So that, again, contributes to my sense of frustration. So. Rolling it back. Rolling it back. All right. Let let me ask you a specific question, Walker, because I've been curious about something for a while, if if you don't mind. There have been a number of occasions, even recently, where Huey and I and and sometimes other people at the table are like, no, Walker, take it back. It's fine. Take it back because you play a card and you thought it worked a certain way and it didn't or because you forgot about how Medusa works or whatever. Whatever whatever the case is. normally, And you refuse to roll it back even when people are asking you to. Why is that? Well, uh, mostly it's because because I need
3: to learn how to read the card and 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 internalize the rules better. And you feel like
2: being punished is the way to do that. Exactly.
3: Really? Yes. If I if I if I keep getting punished, then I'll be more careful and read the whole card. Do you think it works?
2: I, I don't know. We'll find <laughs> out. <laughs> I'm not sure that negative reinforcement works that way in terms of 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 recalling information. I think why would th- I would assume. Both as an educator and from whatever folk psychology I have, undoing it and then redoing it properly would be a better way to reinforce how the the thing works properly than forcing to go through with an inept or inelegant or awkward
3: instantiation of the thing. Well, like we always said, though, sometimes mistakes lead to interesting
2: gameplay. That's fair, but is that part of your motivation? A little bit. Okay. No, that's fair and that's reasonable. Yeah, mistakes are interesting, play faster, is uh, the mantra of Woogie, and it's absolutely true. But it's just sometimes, it really does seem like self-flagellation on on, on your part. Because I think one of the golden rules I think we can all agree with, with respect to whether or not to roll back something, is that, you know, you should definitely try to read the room, as we constantly say. And if the table seems very averse to taking things back, you should probably reel it back. And if the table is very open to reel running things back you should be more open to doing that true in fact the most friction we ever encounter is is usually with you refusing to roll it back when you've made a mistake and it's a double standard because you're not you're not opposed to other people rolling it back when they they, they make a mistake in the card so it really is just this this sense of yours that the punishment will make you remember it's true okay Good to know. All right. So rules, two main,
3: ca- I thought there was two main categories. Okay. Rule was mentioned, but forgotten.
2: Mm-hmm. The
3: rule was missed or not taught. Right. And then there are subcategories for both of these. It is rules that affect everyone equally. Yes. Or rules that only affect certain players. Yes. So this is all to do with, you know, how you deal with a mistake.
2: Yes. So I feel like in our group frequently with respect to rules of of any of these categories if we discover that we've been doing things wrong and we've mentioned this joke before someone either looks at the rule book or they remember something and they say that seems weird that oh wait no that's not how it works the joke is oh well that's a turn four rule and so we just accept the fact that the first 3 turns were done were done wrong and going forward we're just going to do whatever i am
3: so surprised at when i was researching this how many people Said we just play the game, this continually making the mistake on purpose to its finished, and just next game will we play it right?
2: We do that sometimes, on certain occasions. Yes, like let
3: not very often. It, it very is very deterministic on what the actual rule is.
2: Right. Well, say for the sake of argument. Uh, and I'm just going to use Root as an as, as an example because people often mix up the clearings. If someone builds up several turns because they think a card gives them a bonus for every fox clearing they have, but it turns out that it's a bunny clearing, we're usually perfectly willing to say, oh, okay, fine, it works on bunny clearings now. You obviously, like we can remember a couple turns ago how you took that detour to go get that bunny clearing even though there was an open fox clearing. Go for it. That's That's just how the card works from now on. There are some exceptions, like when it's clear that somebody's been building towards it and worked very, very hard, and it's a minor error easily fixed that's arbitrary. It doesn't involve a fundamental rules difference. It's just a, a, a minor uh, tweak. We do that. Or when it's stuff that's easily tracked, like it's
3: obviously that you were supposed to get you know, five resources here and two there. It's like, oh yeah, just, you know, go ahead and pick, you know what I mean? Yes. Where it's all tracked like that's where you just forgot to grab something or a card, you know, at the bottom said, oh, and you also get, you know, two scallops with it as well.
2: <laughs> but that to me is rolling it back. That's not changing the way the rule works. Changing the way the rule works would be, it's like, oh, I forgot to take the income for the past two terms. I guess it doesn't generate income anymore. <laughs> Which would be perverse. I don't know anybody that does it that way. Like- Is Are there game groups where, like, oh, you didn't remember to take the income? It just doesn't generate any income anymore. It didn't generate income in turn four, so it's not going to generate any income. Yeah, I know. That would be awful. I would never want to play with those people. Holy crap. I don't think
3: we'd ever do it two turns. It's like, oh, I've forgotten that for two turns, so get it all now? Because that kind of influx of resources would It depends on the
2: economy. Yes. If we're talking about a game where you're sitting on, like, 29 gold, and you're saying, I'm owed two more gold for two turns of income... You're, you yes. will be fine. <laughs> we'll let you take the two gold. It's okay. <laughs> and this, this actually supersedes our general idea of we're willing to roll back. This isn't even rolling back. This is just sort of ex post facto making a correction. doesn't matter what random elements have been revealed. doesn't matter what plans have been made. What doesn't matter what anyone's done. If you're short a couple bucks, we'll give you the couple bucks.
3: And then there's games that are so short that you just sort of like wipe the table and then Start dealing out again, <laughs> you know I mean? yes. and then someone realized like, oh, we did something wrong,
2: <laughs> and off we go, yes, uh we uh we had an aborted play of Pumafiosi, uh this is particularly because in my defense, now this was a gross rules error in my defense, this was just after after hot lead and hot late sorry hot lead, hot lead, hot lead. Hot lead is basically blind bidding where we all play a card and then it's flipped and, and we reveal. So I, I, I misremembered and thought Puma Fiosi worked the same way. And after a couple of rounds of it being super arbitrary, I'm like, this can't be right. Yes. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, it's more like a trick-taking game. Okay, fine. We play the card face up one at a time. And I was like, well, that makes sense. And we start it over.
3: <laughs> yeah. So when it's short enough, sure enough, we just you know reset the game. But yes. if it's a long one, then more than likely we'll fix the rule. Because we want to have a sense of how the game is supposed to be
2: played. Oh, of course. And there have been times where we've mucked up rules sufficiently badly. We just don't talk about it on the podcast if we haven't had time to play it properly. <laughs> yeah, yeah again, right? it has like, happened. We, we, we do try to exert that level of editorial control, and we have in the past issued corrections whereby if we play a game and a listener points out I think you've been playing it wrong, we'll either try to make an effort to play the game again by the proper rules so we can talk about it again or we then make a correction or something like that. Because as you know, in Time a reviewer doesn't like a game, it's because they weren't playing correctly. That's right. Or they uh, haven't played enough. Well, that too. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, many reasons. But among them is like, oh, you didn't enjoy it? Surely you got a rule wrong. Yes, there was that, of course. The dark time of Oathsworn, back when the rat kept killing us, when many people kept talking about how surely we were getting a rule wrong. No, we were just bad. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, we were just bad. We were just bad. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm willing to roll it back as far. Like, even, I'm, I'm even willing to roll it back, back past somebody's turn on occasion. I wouldn't ask for it, I don't think. Uh, but, you know, like, for example, a game of, of say, uh, Feast for Odin. Just to take a, a random game without a whole heck of a lot of player interaction. If somebody has started their turn and be like, I'm going to go whaling. And then somebody says, wait, hold on. I seriously miscalculated. Would anyone mind if I went and did a different action on my turn that is not whaling? Now, if they say, wait... I've reconsidered, I want to go whale, hard pass. (laughs) So no way, I don't know any grouper that would fly, but if they wanted to go do something else, I think most people, and I suspect most groups would would think that was kind of pushing it a little, but I think they'd be okay with it.
3: This is what leads me to wonder about, uh, like board game arena and like, we love the undo button Yes. sometimes technology is, is, is fickle, but Sometimes you can see someone undoing their turn several times because they've tried to game it out to try to get the most points out of their turn. It's like, oh.
2: And or because the uh, the uh, implementation is fighting them and the buttons are weird. That could be. <laughs> it could be. But it also could be, you know, trying
3: to get the most points out of every turn. So they try this, mm, this, and this. Maybe. Undo. Do something else. No, that the other thing was better. Let me try something else. And then finally their turn comes out and it's like, okay, that, that was odd. <laughs> Well, it's at that point where you hit mute, so
2: the whooshing doesn't distract you too much. (laughs) It's true. Now, I have been involved in groups, let us call these groups sweaty tryhards, where any form of rolling it back is frowned on for any game. I don't find those environments as fun. I feel like it encourages a level of not setting aside the fact that it might encourage more analysis paralysis, which it does. Obviously, you know, people just start acting more carefully. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about the classic chess rule, right? The moment you let go of a piece, that's it. You're done. There's no going back, which works fine for chess. I'm not saying that chess should, should allow take backs. That's not what I'm suggesting, but I, it's, it inspires, I think, a level of distrust and or competitiveness that I don't think is a good vibe. Or at least, let me be more fair, not the vibe I want to be in.
3: Yeah, just so. and Like I've always said, it's like people have very limited time. And I really want people to have the most fun out of the few hours they can eke out to play a board game. I don't want to like continuously punish them. Say, nope, sorry, you didn't do that. Too bad. The rest of the game is is over for you. You can just sit there and watch us play because (laughs) you made a mistake.
2: Now that all of that having been said, and as permissive as we are of takebacks, and as as encouraging we are in many cases, uh, sometimes people do push it, and people, and by people I mean me, there are sometimes a game where I'm just constantly forgetting the thing the second after I do it. By the fifth, sixth, seventh times, like wait a minute, hold on, no, 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 put that back, put that back in, and like at that point, maybe you should just start living with your mistakes. Like there are kind of there are usually limits that you have to kind of feel out. Where it starts to become a little bit tedious. And or that's an indication you're not paying enough attention on your turn. Yeah, that's that's my problem. Not paying (laughs) enough attention. Maybe I should just adopt the Walker self-flagellation method. I think I need to get a shock collar. (laughs) (laughs) Save it for the OnlyFans, Walker. There we go. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. We are on most of the social meds. We have a guild on BoardGameGeek. We have a Discord. There are so many ways to contact us.
3: And please do, because I really want to hear your stories about how you guys deal with rules, pullbacks, or when you make a mistake in a game.
2: Absolutely. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again very much for tuning in. We appreciate the time you spent with us, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Biggin. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song FOS as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com, or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always try to be right. But remember, you are so very wrong.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more,